podcast one production. Hello, my name's Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home, where we explore the unknown stories behind the food that we all love. In Australia, every year, billions of dollars worth of food goes to waste. And Ronnie Kahn from Oz Harvest has dedicated her life to reducing that number. Ronnie is a vivacious woman whose bright yellow outfits and tons of jewellery have now become synonymous with her outlook on life and the foundation that she lives and breathes. She's a tornado of a woman and we had a fascinating chat about life, about death, about the universe and giving back as often as you can. Hope you enjoy. I was reading, Ronnie, um, somewhere along the line that you delivered cakes for your mum when you were eight years old. And that was, and it captivated me. I go, that's where I'm starting. So Absolutely. tell me about that. Yeah, so my dad was involved in a car accident when I was six, actually. And he landed up being in hospital for two years. They didn't even know if he'd survive. And my mum suddenly had three kids, no husband, and needed to work. And she was a gorgeous baker and a beautiful cook. A friend who owned a bowling club said, make me some cakes. And that grew into a business and she was making about 100 cakes a day. I'd help ice them, put the cherry in the middle, and then I was the youngest and really my food delivery life started then. (laughs) Because I was the one roped in to having to help her pack the car. So I was an expert packer. She had a a separate shelf. We just had a little car, but she had a wooden shelf built. And then I'd have to go with her to the cafes and the bowling clubs. I hated it. I was a spoiled little brat, but I did it. So how old were you? I was about seven, seven, yeah, eight, eight because for the first year she did other things. She did lots of things until she hit on the cakes yeah. and everybody loved her cakes. What, what moments do you remember other than packing the car oh, from that So vividly, time? our garage was fitted out with tables and that's where my mum had a little one of our helpers because I was born in South Africa, mm. so we did have um, maids. Yep. And... They, that's where the icing was done. And literally my best treat was to take a fork and wiggle the icing. So we got a pattern. And then I was also allowed to put the cherry because there was always a cherry in the middle of all her chocolate cakes. And on her vanilla cakes, she'd sprink- we'd sprinkle coconut around the edge. What smells do you remember? I know I'm being oh, a bit, no, you know, no. do you remember this? <laughs> Absolutely, because vanilla essence, that smell of vanilla, not knowing it was vanilla essence, and um, even that sensation of taking the cherries, which were sticky, mm. out, and don't tell anybody because I used my fingers. They didn't have give me a fork, <laughs> nor did we have plastic gloves. They were little gloves. fingers, Ronnie. They it's were okay. tiny little clean fingers. <laughs> so I can smell the cherries. Oh, like the syrup. They the were syrup. Mar- sweet maraschino yeah, cherries. Sweet in, and we'd go like, I'd, I'd wriggle them and then plonk them in the middle. And yes, I, and, and of course, you know, chocolate cakes were my favourite. So... Icing the chocolate was the best because if by mistake some 
escaped the spoon or the spatula. <laughs> I did have to just leave. You have to. Yeah, you have yeah. to eat it. It's, it's a responsibility to totally, do that. Totally. And what do you remember of your mum back then? Did she work hard? Was it a difficult oh. time in Oh, it was in an ex- extraordinary time because she baked these cakes in our own kitchen and a fabulous story I'll share with you. She had one mix master, so we didn't have money, but she was baking these cakes in our home Mix masters in our own little kitchen. My parents didn't live here, but I went to visit them. And on that day, another friend was visiting them. And when they explained that I was Sylvia's daughter, this woman said, Well, I had a spare mix master and I gave it to your mother. And that was her second mix master. <laughs> and that was such a precious moment for me yeah. all those years forward to think about how the generosity of this woman had actually supported my family. How lovely. And a mm. fully equipped kitchen with two mixed masters. That's, exactly. Uh, but it's tough running. It'd be tough running a little business, you know, and, you know, you, you wouldn't be making a huge amount of money. You'd be working really hard. Oh, my mother to... worked her butt off, yeah, to support us. And definitely the cakes was probably the hardest after that. She sold wallpaper, sold, did lots of things. She was an absolutely entrepreneurial, enterprising woman, masses of energy and nothing daunted her. I never recall her ever coming home tired, irritable, miserable. Yeah, she just smiled through it. Where does that come from, do you think? Where did it come from with your mum? Definitely the work ethic of her parents and... Um, my dad as well, if I think about him. So he'd been in hospital for two years. He was an architect. He came out of that accident with one stiff leg, one leg in a caliper. Um, and he went, resumed becoming an architect, climbed up ladders. We never thought of him as disabled, but actually he was challenged. Mm. significantly challenged. But that attitude, I think it came from their parents who were immigrants from Europe, who came with nothing and just made good to provide education and a home for their children. That's what my parents saw. That's what I saw. When Mm. did you leave South Africa? When was that? I left when I was 16 and a half. So young. I finished school and went straight to university overseas in Israel because I got a scholarship to go there. And I, I read somewhere you worked on a kibbutz. Or... I did. I lived on a kibbutz for 10 years. <laughs> 10 and, years. And some part of that, I was in the kitchen cooking. <laughs> oh, see, I didn't read that. I didn't know that. So now yeah. you have to tell me about that. So why did you end up on a kibbutz? Why was that? So a kibbutz is a socialist way of life. And growing up in South Africa, I was in a youth movement which espoused liberalism, democracy, socialism. This was during the apartheid era. There didn't seem to be any end to the apartheid era. So staying in South Africa meant you were either going to fight the system Mm. or you were going to leave. And I left. And Did you get into, into any trouble being part of that movement in South Africa at the time? Look, the leaders of that movement were always watched. Um, we participated in uh, demonstrations, riots. They're definitely the undercurrent of the leaders who were already at university were always on the on the list, on the blacklists. Mm. Um, a lot of my parents' friends were involved in fighting apartheid. Um, 
And I always say my parents were brave and courageous, but just not that brave enough to actually physically fight or put their lives at risk. But they did because they put us in a liberal school. I have two sisters and they encouraged us to join this movement and then encouraged us to leave, which is never an easy thing for a parent to do, but they did eventually come to live in Israel. Mm. So tell us about that. Kibbutz. (laughs) Well, cooking for 350 people, I can share one Friday night where I was the cook and take into account it's a very multicultural society. We had um, people from um, African descent Israelis. We had European Israelis. We had um, all different types of people living. And one of the biggest, fanciest meals that I recalled my mother making was chicken with pineapple. (laughs) And I decided I was going to make roast chicken with pineapple for the 350 people Mm. that Friday night. So mixing sweet and meat. Well, it was a sensation for some and an outrage for (laughs) others. I had some of the Yemenite Israelis coming to me and saying, if I want to eat pineapple, I eat pineapple. If I want to eat chicken, I eat chicken. I do not eat them together. (laughs) But I can tell you there were many very, very happy and excited people at this innovation. (laughs) See, I would have thought the sweet and the meat would be something that they were used to. I mean, well, if, if you, you think, think about, about couscous and, and dates dried fruit. and yeah. all those sort of things, yeah. pomegranate, you know. I would have thought so too, but maybe it was the tinned pineapple that yeah, yeah, they was, didn't yeah, like. Maybe it was. The tropical <laughs> inclination of this dish Absolutely. didn't make them happy. Yeah. But I will share one funny cooking thing on kibbutz because in December it, we have a festival that's called Hanukkah, which now is very much aligned with Christmas, but has no connection. But Hanukkah is all about cooking with oil, eating oily products because it celebrates a miracle of oil. And on the kibbutz, I was in charge of making donuts. So that's hundreds and hundreds of donuts. Very, everybody loved the donuts. So we had a brat fry pan about a meter and a half by meter and a half. And I had a whole bunch of women helping me we rolled the donuts and then popped them into the oil, the boiling oil. And one of my volunteers came up and said, oh, my God, I've lost my diamond ring. I said, well, don't worry. Let's just look at all the donuts and hopefully one of them doesn't rise. <laughs> and we found the ring. Are you serious? I am absolutely serious. Ring. We found the ring. It had come off in a donut. And it just went glug, glug, glug to the bottom of the pan. <laughs> it was a big ring. That's all I can it, say. Absolutely. If it stops the rise of a donut. But that absolutely. would have been a lucky a lucky find, I think, for one hungry totally, eater of donuts. Totally. And I, I'd consider that they might find uh, finders keepers, <laughs> the rule there. Yeah, that's what she was worried about. <laughs> what, did you, what did you take away from that period in your life? Uh, it was an extraordinary experience. It was... Very challenging, but very exciting. I loved some parts of living in community. I loved the community part. What I didn't love and was a challenge for me was being told that you have to work in the kitchen or you have to work here. And in, and this is 40 years ago, 35, 35 years ago, where there definitely were um, 
there was sexism in where you worked. And so I wanted to go and work in the fields and I was initially just put into either education or the kitchen. So I challenged, clearly my entrepreneurial independent spirit came out then because whilst I loved living in community, I felt I wanted to be the master of my own fate. And in that society, you work according to your ability and you get according to your need. And as a well, and also social values and you know but, equality and that if that's important. But those social values have always stayed with me. The moral compass is what stayed with me, and it was. I I, I do not regret one single minute of living there. My son, my first son, was born there. Both my sons were raised there until we left the kibbutz. It was extraordinary. Yeah, you n- never tempted to. Do you, do you, does your mind wander sometimes? Oh, it's, what's fascinating is that our kibbutz has actually become enormously successful and therefore there is enormous wealth to be shared by the community. So they are way more wealthy than, <laughs> than we are and today they live an extraordinary life, but they had to go through the last 30 years to get there. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the story of many people, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. I wonder if it's changed how they think about things. Well, I I think I've always laughed and said kibbutz is wonderful for children and for old people. It's the period in the middle. That's the challenge. (laughs) But um, look, they love their lives and they, you know, the people that stayed and a lot of our friends who did stay feel that they've lived the most fulfilling and extraordinary life. So what happened after that? Did you move to Australia after that or did you go elsewhere in the world? No, we moved to Australia. We first lived in the city in Israel. Um, because I was idealistic about the notion of Israel, but um, found myself a little jaded. I also have a brother-in-law who was killed in the 1973 war, and I have two sons, and staying in Israel meant that they would be automatically conscripted to the army, and I wanted them to have their own choice. Well, I was going to ask that. Were you there? What did that experience look like? frightening and horrifying. My brother-in-law, he was called up. It it was the war that took Israel by surprise when um, Israel was attacked on the holiest day of the year, the Day of Atonement, um, and should have been awake but wasn't. And it was a shocking, frightening experience. Um, that I wouldn't, that, you know, I wouldn't want to put anybody through really, but is the reality of living in that country and a small country that, you know, with with borders that needed defending. So n- not a fun experience, but again, a very um, community-orientated, extraordinary how the whole country comes together, um, supporting literally, it's a tiny country, and literally from one side of the country to the other, messages were flowing. If you saw a soldier, you passed on. It, it was an extraordinary experience. Did, what did it change in you? I think, well, a newfound respect for life and death, um, horror about war, horror about military, the need for military expense and the need for for living for anybody in any country today living under siege, mm. it's hideous. No, in your mind, no belief or no disagreement is 
bad enough to warrant war? Well, I, I believe <clears throat> that this that our spirits are not meant for war. That there are there are ways to to negotiate, to talk, to get through every single major difficulty. Mm. You know, every time you see leaders come together, and we've recently seen leaders come together, ultimately, and, and I'm, I'm not commenting on the latest one, mm. but ultimately when people do talk face-to-face, we are all the same. You know, our beliefs might differ, but what we need in common is mm. common respect and tolerance. If yeah. we have tolerance and respect, then you don't have to agree with what I agree with, but I respect your views and you respect mine. Mm. And if we could find that place, there would be no need mm. for billions and trillions of dollars to oh, go to the middle. And this is it, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's, it's the cost, not only in it's human not the life. Human but also exactly. in, in dollars and yeah. the economy. And you'd think there'd be more value in the success of the economies and, and just have a disagreement, be disagree about something. So was that yeah. one of the reasons, and because you had children, you decided to come to Australia? Yes, it, I came to the promised land. Is that what it was? You didn't go, <laughs> why, didn't you, why didn't you go to America or to... Interesting. My sister lives in America, um, and we had spent two years working here. And I just knew that I didn't want to bring up my kids in America. Mm. And, of course, that's an absolutely the widest statement ever. And my children, my nephews and nieces are absolutely divine with wonderful values. But I just felt Australia was far enough from the Western world and still similar enough in a way to my childhood in South Africa because there are a lot of similarities between South Africa and Australia um, and just loved it here. And, yeah, it it was the land of opportunity <laughs> and I think it still is. What did you connect with when you first arrived? I mean, I still remember the first day I arrived in Australia. I mean, I, yeah. I remember sitting in Fitzroy Gardens uh, on a sunny, beautiful, clear, sunny day and, and just thought it, I just thought it looked, Beautiful. Well, I came from Haifa, which is a city on a beach, and landed in Sydney and <laughs> was taken to Bondi Beach. And I thought, well, this is heaven. And was we bought fish and chips. <laughs> so you want smells, tastes, and flavors? That was it. <laughs> you know, the fish and chips on the beach, literally in paper, was just so exquisite time and place what was your career once you arrived here well i'd had three flor i'd had a florist shop very successful after i'd left kibbutz i had a florist shop in israel and thought the only thing i wasn't going to do was floristry because it's damn hard looks beautiful in the shop yeah everybody uh, the, i think even my wife has dreamt of owning a florist shop and i go i think there's absolutely I think there's a reason why. <laughs> the smelly vase that you have in your in your home multiply that by 150 <laughs> and it's not fun um yeah but my husband couldn't find work and i arrived in january and every all over there were masses of ads for florists um i uh, holidays are different in this part of the world to the mm. Middle East. And finally, in about the first week in February, I took a job in a florist. 
and was fired on the 15th of February because the 14th is Valentine's Day. It's the busiest time of the year and florists only needed people for the duration of Valentine's that is, Day. That is cruel entrepreneurialism at its worst, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> but I touched flowers again and it didn't take long before I was working actually from home and before I had three florists. What inspired you to start the For Purpose journey? So I'd reached a point... I'd given up the florists. I'd started an event production company and was doing more and more events. And all of my events, the bread, the glue to my events was food. Nothing showcases a successful client or a happy family than breaking bread around beautiful food. And I was doing very high-end events with you know, the likes of Neil Perry was the caterer that I was using, those kind of caterers. And and my events had magnificent food. And most of my events were off-site. They were in unique venues. I was a little bit of a head of our time. I didn't like hotel ballrooms. And the end of the event would come and the caterers would want to get the hell out of there and they would just throw away the food. And I reached a point that when I could, I would take some of that food and drop it at an agency. I had also recently ended a relationship with a fellow that was seemingly very rich. And my values had got a little bit thwarted and lost along the way. And when I said, I think, I think we could start a charity, he said, I don't believe in charity. So that became time for that relationship to end. And I thought, wow, I have a problem. I always have the surplus food. I know that there are people in need. What if I could connect those two? I guess 87 million meals later, <laughs> it wasn't a bad idea. <laughs> Do you think that was a long time coming? You think something was shifting in your world? I mean, it, Definitely. Because to run a, run a business like that, that is not by accident, is it? I mean, you would have worked no. very hard. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think for me, reaching that point, my mum, when she, my dad had had that accident, had just said, you've got to work, you've got to make money, you've got to make sure you have money because for her, in her world, if they'd have had money, her life would have been much better. So money was a real big driver. Then I lived on kibbutz, no money. Then we came to live in the city and I was really focused. Got to make money. And, and so my business was about making money until suddenly I looked around and I had a roof over my head. I had food on my table. I have two beautiful, you know, then teenage growing up young men. And money wasn't everything. How many more shoes could I have? How many more jewels could I have? Obviously a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but it just started, I started questioning everything about purpose and my legacy and what was I doing on this earth. And that's when that convergence came together of, wow, I've got all this food. Yep, there are people in need. What if? It's an interesting thought about money, the, the way you talk about it there. So how do you feel about money in the city and... I think money's just useful. I think that if we had to ask, and 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 this is a challenging one I'm putting out there, but the late Kerry Packer, if he could have traded in some of his money to live longer, I 
think he might have said yes. So I think it's very obvious that we can't take our money with us and that the value that is given to money now is just completely out of whack with the reality of life. And I think more and more in my everyday, I see that as harvest is a magnet for people who want meaning and purpose. And there is a groundswell of people who have reached that point and realized that actually money can't buy you happiness. It can't buy you everything. And that it's very useful. And I certainly am the first person to say that money is very useful but it isn't the be-all and the end-all. Mm. I suppose mm. it gives you choice, doesn't it? And it then does. you choose what, what you're yeah. going to do with it and how, yeah. whether you try and take it with you or whether or not you give it a- away along the way. Absolutely, and what we do know is we can't take it with us. Mm. So, we, so I think more and more people are realising, and that is a beautiful thing. I think that philanthropy is growing in Australia. I think that more and more people are realising that to give while you can see where it's going is so much more valuable and enriching and nourishing. You know, that we nourish our soul with food, we nourish our tummies with food, but we nourish our soul with other things. Mm. My mission in life is to share with people that there is so much more to life than accruing more and more that at some point we have to realize what is enough mm. and then share. This is A Plate to Call Home. I'm Gary Megan, and more from Ronnie after the break. Oz Harvest, certainly in the last couple of years, the momentum, yeah. and that's obviously down to your hard work that it's, that it's yeah. gathered, is now people recognise the brand, the colour. The, Absolutely. As much as anything. Look. The start of that and the idea of that, that entity... Yeah, so that really was that very start of purpose. And what I I didn't realize when I started Oz Harvest that actually three million people in Australia suffer from food insecurity. I didn't realize then that then it was $10 billion, but today $20 billion worth of food go to waste. I honestly thought I'd just do this until I collected all the surplus and then I'd get on and do something else. But once I realized the scale of the problem, I I realized that I was in this to find a solution and not just perpetuate the problem. So f- so really that's where Oz Harvest has grown and deviated from pure food rescue. Food rescue is what we do because any good food that's fit for consumption should, that surplus, should go and feed humans first. And given that we have hungry people, that's where good food should go. The challenge is that we actually need to make all of us aware of why good food does go to waste and how we can repurpose it and how we can change and shift our values. And that's something that I'm sure you're very aware of, you know, since the rise of all our beautiful TV shows around food. There's such a greater awareness around food. People are, are valuing food more. But on the other hand, there's also seems to be this abundance of food and people aren't realizing that actually takes love, fuel, energy, labor, an enormous amount to grow food and to not value it and to know that a third of all food that's produced globally goes to waste, 
is unconscionable. And so on the one hand, I want to make sure that good food goes to waste. That's what Oz Harvest's core mission is. But on the other, it's about educating vulnerable people on how to live a more sustainable life so that if we bring down food waste, that they're not disadvantaged, that they learn in the meanwhile how to shop and how to cook and how to live a more sustainable life. That vulnerable youth, we break the cycle of intergenerational poverty and give them an opportunity to get jobs because some of those kids have never had a role model. And so that's one of our programs, teaching the charitable organizations how to use this beautiful produce that we now bring them. I mean, some of them had never seen you know, um, bok choy or wagyu beef or fresh salmon. They knew how to boil bangers and make mash but didn't know how to cook this. So we have a program that teaches how to cook and then our latest program is called Fight Food Waste which is about making all of us aware and being part of, of the movement to help us save food. In in how old is Ozfest now? We'll be fourteen this year. So can you? I mean, you you probably got the stats on the tips of your, of tip of your tongue. But yeah. can you remember first year and first year now? we delivered sixty <clears throat> six hundred the equivalent of six hundred and fifty thousand meals. We had three vehicles, um, and now we have fifty five vehicles and deliver twenty five million meals a year. It's incredible. How how on earth? Because I'm I'm sure awareness has improved, but how on earth do you get it to the masses where people start to think more about? Because I I still throw I feel terrible when I throw stuff away, but totally. I still throw things away. I think the way I've solved it in my house is I tend to buy like you would in Europe. I buy. Uh, every day or every couple of days. Well, but that's not practical for most people. They go yep. to the supermarket, big shop, and then a third of it goes in the bin at the end yeah, of the Yeah, so our mantra, new mantra, is look, buy, store, cook. So if you look what's in your fridge and look what's in your pantry, you buy what you need, you store it properly till you use it, and then you cook it, use it, eat it all up. And that will go a long way. But, of course, we don't have the reach so seriously I mean, for us, one of the best ways for for Australia, for the for the world, is when beautiful TV shows mm. would start actually adding that element of not wasting and showcasing that. So it gets into a little bit of the subconscious watched it. That's what we need because the same way as the subconscious is I want to cook an exqu- exquisite meal and I want to go and buy all the ingredients for that. So sometimes you might have someone going to buy 15 ingredients for something they've seen on TV. They might never use them again. They might trial it once. So, you know, we have a responsibility to think about how we could, how we can use those fantastic mediums. You know, um, a, a, a producer and documentary maker came to us and and said he wanted to do a film on food waste, which we've been... We're thrilled about um, what wasn't so thrilling was halfway through when he decided he needed a a, a, a a character, a protagonist, and said a person who wears big glasses and lots of jewelry would be would useful. Be perfect. <laughs> and I said, absolutely no. Let's just continue the filming. It's about food waste. 
but it wasn't our film and the film has just come out and it it it, it ha- does follow me the last few oh, years so the protagonist is in yeah 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 <clears throat> the, well that's good I, it I adds an identity a and uh, and a and a solid voice to the yeah and it highlights food waste and at the end there's a call to action to join the movement to fight food waste to compost to not waste food to think about the value of food so it's funny because it's funny you're talking about using up all all of your bits and pieces yeah or buying ingredients for dishes and never using them again george told me um would have been about a month ago yeah he said oh we've got a challenge in our house we are going to see if we can use up everything in the pantry and i just went that's a crack and i do and we've been doing the same because we um, and I don't like throwing anything away, but exactly. often there'll be tubs of things and bottles of things that, because as a cook, I collect all sorts of stuff. Absolutely. And, we don't and use them. if you, you know, I know that, for example, before I used to make a list, there might be 10 tins of chickpeas. I'd always think maybe there are no chickpeas in that at home. I'll go and buy That's more chickpeas. That's the Israeli background. I need chickpeas. I must. It can go through anything, but then I wasn't using them. Yeah. And it's that, you know, so I love that yeah. idea. Let's throw out that challenge that challenge. use up everything in your pantry. Use the lentils that you never thought it, you were going to cook with again. And, exactly. and because it's so easy now, the yeah. recipe files the are online, you can exactly. you just plug in lentils and yeah. you get a hundred dishes. We have just created a school program for years five and six for teachers because the biggest challenge is I think youth – and kids, if they don't get it from home, they have to get it somewhere. And so this program teaches teaches how to deliver a module on nutrition, on sustainability, and it comes with a cooking kit and an electric idea. frying pan and everything so that in the class they can do a stir fry. They can, I mean, obviously we encourage, you know, like Stephanie Alexander, the garden, but, you know, to 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 come into the class because cooking, when kids cook, they start understanding the carrot because if somebody tells them that the carrot was grown out of the earth because otherwise you see chopped carrots in a plastic bag on a supermarket shelf. Our children don't know where food comes from. A steak is on a polystyrene tray covered in plastic. It's not the cow that you say moo-moo when you see and hopefully we'll get the funding I mean, to a- roll that out. It's called Feast. And this particular program is also targeting healthy eating because child obesity and diabetes is up. And this uh, the, this has been built by nutritionists and educationalists so that it, it will also help mm. to minimize obesity by teaching kids what is healthy to eat. That's brilliant. So, yeah. I remember driving, um, I picked my daughter up from, I think it was kindy, and two chickens, it was a suburban street, two chickens ran out of one driveway and ran into another driveway and I stopped the car and I said, look, and I wound the windows down, I said, look, two chickens. (laughs) And she she was excited and these chickens just were at the front of the driveway and then they ran back in and I went, yum, roast chicken. And it, I didn't realise she burst into tears. It was yeah. the first moment she that connected. she realised that, that the chicken that she loved to eat was yeah. a chicken. Yeah. And it was a really I, – I felt terrible. But yeah, it was one of those imagine. moments where – because you don't realise. But that's exactly it's a connection the eggs between, so when come you, from the supermarket. <laughs> Chickens don't – aren't those cute little things that go cock-a-doodle-doodle. <laughs> it's a funny thing. One of the biggest challenges I would imagine is tackling big supply chains – 
you know, uh, big ag business uh, supermarkets. Is that is that something that no, is so, an impossibility or is not r- relevant? Where, where does uh, it no, start? No, so so the biggest the biggest thirty percent of our food comes from supermarkets, Oz <clears throat> Harvest. Um, so because we had laws changed that allow good food to be given away for free, there's no liability yeah, to food being given before away. That, before that, were nobody to could. Do it. Our challenge really is capacity, and it's really about logistics and transport and distribution. I mean, that is one of the biggest. That is the biggest reason that food goes to waste. It's the whole issue of distribution, logistics. Obviously, it is also about cosmetic standards that we have to shift and change. Our views, the supermarkets have to make bigger or, or different shaped shelves. So, that yeah. they're not so you're looking. talking about perfect apples, unblemished yeah, vegetables. Yeah, it's one of the big reasons that good stuff. food, good produce goes to waste because we shift through it and want the perfect apple, not the one with freckles. Or the one with flavour, funnily exactly, enough. Exactly, the one with flavour. Our produce sits on, you know, in refrigerators for a year before it comes out. So how can it possibly be flavoursome? It tastes like chalk. And so those are the challenges. Challenge. Are, you, are you proud of a moment in Oz Harvest's sort of recent history where you've you've got over a hurdle that you didn't think you could? Yeah, well, if you... <laughs> I'll share with you a little scene in the film that, of course, I didn't want in the film, but it wasn't our film. And a documentary maker watches, and as far as they're concerned, what they watch is what they want to show, and they want to show the controversial, challenging bits. So um, in the film, we go dumpster diving, and we find a dumpster that's absolutely full of perfectly fabulous good food. And then I discover that it's one of our major partners, Dumpsters. And that's an awkward moment because they work with us and then we've just filmed a dumpster filled with food. So, of course, I say to the documentary maker, well, this will never make it into the film. And he says, oh, no, I just saw this and I filmed it and, of course, it's going to go in the film. So I have to confront our supermarket partner and say, I got a problem. We were filming and they filmed this dumpster and they're going to show it. And at first, certain people in the supermarket chain had heart failure and said, if you show that, you're not our friend. Until I realized that he was not going to take it out of the film. And so I had to go to the CEO who took one look and I said, this is what's happened. And he said, well, then you must show it. If that's what's been seen, we need to do better, which was a, 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 a seminal moment for me when you get leadership that is committed and didn't just say, cut, you know, we'll do whatever it takes. Let's remove that piece. He said, you show that piece and we need to do better. Yeah. So that's exciting. Hardest time in your life? Um, Look, I lost my daughter-in-law two and a half years ago to cancer in eight weeks. That was, you know, it came from nowhere and before we had a chance to know it had hit us. Um, I think that's probably, 
you know, as a child, you geared to lose your parents. As a parent, you're not geared to lose your children. So that was personally an incredibly challenging and difficult time, but actually also an extraordinary time of healing and gratitude for her life. Um, that would have been, yeah. And and the first couple of years in Oz Harvest, my board was a really tough board. I used to say I cried six times a year, not from joy. And that was at my board meetings when they were <laughs> challenging. I'd never had a board. I didn't know what I was doing. I'd run a, I'd run my own business prior to Oz Harvest, and now I was accountable. That was challenging. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. So what is it? So what is Oz Harvest? What are the challenges say in the next five years? What do you think um, so, the organisation has to work on? And so we have to work on a sustainable model. So currently, we are sustained by philanthropy, by individuals, by corporates, by trusts, foundations. And a very small percentage of our funding comes from government. I have just set up a new business called the For Purpose Co. And we're looking at a whole range of opportunities that are fully for profit. And all the profit of that business is to sustain our harvest. So the challenges for us are to, because we keep wanting to roll out new and magnificent effective programs, <laughs> is finding the funding to deliver on that. So it's it's about skills, attitude, the right people, and, you know, to attract the right people. We've got everything that attracts the right people. We just, in our sector, we still don't pay what the for-profit sector pays. I say we're a for-purpose. We are definitely not a not-for-profit because I haven't heard Google or Microsoft or Woolworths or Coles call themselves a not-for-loss. Mm. So why should we be called a not-for-profit? We have profit. We just measure it differently. So how do people get involved? So to go to ozharvest.org, that's the simplest. All that information is there. But if they go to fightfoodwaste.org, they can join the movement. And we would love for everybody who's listening to this to help us by sharing this message with at least 10 more people that together we can solve the issue of good food going to waste rather than going to feed hungry people. Yeah. And how do people get involved on another level? So if they want to choose, because I think sometimes people, they feel if they get sucked in, it's the vortex and they, they, they're going deep. But how can yeah. they get involved at different levels? So there's people can join us in three ways. They can give us their time, their money, or their produce. <laughs> so if you've got time, become a volunteer and join Oz Harvest and go to info at ozharvest.org and you will get all that information. If you've got produce or know people who have food, please connect with us and we will then reach out to them and share with them how easy it is to give us their food. And if you've got money, all you have to do is <laughs> go to the heart on the Oz Harvest site and click on it and it tells you how you can donate. It's so easy and we would love that because every one of your dollars allows us to deliver two more meals to vulnerable people in Australia. Beautiful. Ronnie Khan, you are a, a living legend and you're a dynamo. I don't know where you get all the energy and I hope people listening to this are rapidly uh, clicking up, looking for the website and hitting the heart or volunteering some time. 
Thank you very much. Thank you, Gary. I cannot tell you how I appreciate the opportunity and how joyful it has been to chat with you. Thank you. <laughs> Lovely. Talking about food waste, where do we start? Well, a couple of things that I do at home and where I've changed my habits, I try and shop more regularly. So rather than doing a big shop on a Saturday, and that's really hard for busy families, but it does make a difference because you tend to over shop and then by the middle of the week, half the stuff's gone manky, you chuck it in the bin and off you go again buying more food. So I shop every couple of days, I plan ahead, think about what I need. Now, once you get that food back home, a couple of little tips, store stuff in the vegetable crisper, obviously, um, but wrapping things like herbs and lettuces, soft leaves in damp cloths, putting them in the crisper helps prolong shelf life. Also, putting things in little plastic containers, sealing them up and looking after them helps. And that fruit bowl, you know, sometimes you buy bananas, one week the kids demolish them, next week they don't touch them. You know what I do before the fruit turns? Chop it up, put it in the freezer and then pull those bananas out, use them for smoothies or the apples, chop them up, freeze them and then use it for a quick crumble midweek when the kids are hungry and they want something sweet. We can all do our bit and if we do a little bit, it'll make a big difference. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Zwolenski. Audio production is Darcy Thompson and special thanks to Imogen Thomas for all the research. (laughs) 